Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and food and making and baking things, um, historical and otherwise. And today we have a very special guest who is on our podcast for a second time, which is very exciting. We've not driven um, you off. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this is uh, Dr. Neil Buttery. Would you like to introduce yourself again? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm Neil Buttery. Yeah, I'm, I'm a chef and a food historian. And I somehow get away with doing that as a job. That is living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so you have a special subject to talk to us about today. Um... Yes. A very special person um, called Elizabeth Raffold, which most people haven't heard of. Have you have you heard of her, or had you heard of her? I hadn't. No, not not before um, you told us about uh, your your work on her. Um, had had you this? No, I I feel slightly guilty given I love food history and live in Manchester, and somehow hadn't come across this name. <laughs> oh, you live in Manchester? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in Bury. Ah, right. There is a few. Um, there's there's one mark. In Manchester, that you might see if you're eagle-eyed of the existence of Elizabeth Raffold, and that's a blue plaque stuck on the side of Selfridges and Co. Oh, okay, I'll keep. It's I'll really keep high. It's really small, and you wouldn't notice it. But uh, yeah, most people haven't heard of her. You know, a lot of people who are who are food historians also haven't heard of her. So don't feel bad about that. Okay. Um, before we get into that, um. I'm just after after that um that little appetizer. Mm. Um I'm going to um go into our uh section that we like to start with, uh, where we talk about the things that we have been making and or baking or cooking recently. Um so uh Liz, do you wanna go first? What have you been up to? I haven't done anything since we last recorded. <laughs> Oh no! I've, I've prepared. Um, so it was mine and Nick's anniversary uh, yesterday, as we're recording uh, this week, as the episode is released. And it's fourth anniversary is the linen anniversary. Um, so naturally, we got a tie dye kit that we will <laughs> be playing with this weekend. <laughs> that sounds so much fun. It's very and romantic. <laughs> I mean it's it's fun to do things together. That's the important part, right? It absolutely is. I imagine um, the other important part is that your partner now has to wear the clothes that you've horrifically tie-dyed for them. Oh no, we're t- we're we're both tie-dyeing stuff. We've got some shirts. Um I picked up a white dress from Marks and Spencer's to go ham on. It's gonna be <laughs> great. Amazing. Um the other thing I've been preparing for is romantic though because I always make a raspberry and white chocolate cake around our anniversary because that was our wedding cake. It so we'll be making a raspberry and white chocolate cake this weekend. I just haven't done it yet. Brilliant. Nice. I have a similar, I am preparing to make hot cross buns, but it, it has not happened yet because tis the season. 
Um, it really is. This, this episode's going out on Easter Sunday, isn't it? So I might have bunned by then. I think I am going to need a picture of these buns. I love a hot cross bun. Just to prove that it happened. Um, yeah, they are, it is just a fantastic smell that happens um, mm. when when you're baking them. Just all of the cinnamony and and doughy and <laughs> I'm not selling this very well, but it's great. It's great. <laughs> I um, make them every year too. I I love making hot cross buns. I get a little bit better every year. <laughs> that sounds great. I seem to get a bit worse every year. <laughs> So I'm glad it's working for you. <laughs> um, what technique do you go for for like the crosses on top? Do you like pipe them or do you like make a little little flower clay? It depends on how enthusiastic stroke strapped for time I am. Um, <laughs> I will literally just put a cross using a knife, which is how they used to be done back in the day. Okay, so what I'm being is authentic. That's what I tell myself. When I, can't I was going to say, so what, yeah, what you're, you're saying is I can just do that and tell people just, that yeah. this is the original. Yeah, you're keeping it real. <laughs> what do you think of all these um, different flavoured hot cross buns, like your cheese and chilli ones and chocolate and orange ones? Honestly, I'm a fan. Like, I'm I'm pro the different flavor hot cross bun because I never used to like the traditional ones. I've always had a hatred of sultanas, so <laughs> um, <laughs> I now just, hatred. Yeah, I now just make mine without sultanas in, which is why I never really get, got into like Victorian foods because they're in everything. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now I just make them without them in. But like, I would definitely have appreciated a chocolate and orange version when I was younger. So I'm, I'm in favour. Yeah, I can I can appreciate those kinds of things from a distance, <laughs> and I've been tempted by the Bramley apple ones. But I'm I'm the opposite of you, Hazel, because like when I was a kid, I would have a toasted tea cake every break time in primary school. Aww. I love toasted bread with raisins and sultanas in. Mm, so I just, too. I always go for the original. I'm with you. Classic. <laughs> but, you know, I won't um, judge you too much. <laughs> you. <laughs> you can't judge me on my own podcast. <laughs> That's a lie. You absolutely can. And Liz has done it many times. Um, the reenactment season is also coming up. So I am... Sort of preparing to my thing this year is I want to learn to spin flax with a distaff. Um, mm. Yeah, so I have commissioned slash bullied my partner into making me a distaff, um, which you probably one of the ones that you can tuck into your belt and then you like tie the flax around it. I found a source of um, line flax. So like the proper stuff where it's the full length of the plant. Um, and I'm going to give that a go, hopefully, this summer. But watch this face. Um, so that is that is me. Um, How does flax come? I mean, I've, when you when you buy it, is it just strips of plant that you have to kind of rub or something to get the separate fibres out? I've never really done it before. Yeah, I, know it's a big, so, I know it's a thing, but that's beyond. 
that's, that's it basically that's my knowledge so there's there's kind of two kinds um there's the line flax which is flax is the um the fiber that runs the full length of the stem of the plant mm. um so it's quite a long fiber um and you can get the line flax um which produces like a really fine linen um and that is it comes um already processed so it's just the fibers that have been already um separated from the the plants and so you can just spin them um or there's um you can buy it in a, a more commercial um form where it's like shorter fibers mm. it's been kind of broken down um and then you can you can spin that but it won't produce as smooth a fiber but it's it's still cool because you can blend it with other things and um and do all sorts of things um so I have worked with um, the sort of combed um, flax um, in various other blends, but I've never, I've never worked with the full line flax, or they call it a, a strick of flax, um, which is uh, what um, would have been done to produce like fine linens in the medieval era. Um, so. I'm gonna give it a go. Mm. Uh, we'll see <laughs> uh, what what happens. Um, but at the least, it'll be a fun experiment. Um, yeah. So, what about you, Neil? Well, I've been spending. Well, I've been so a lot of my making stuff has been food recently. Um, constantly cooking something 18th century is what I seem to be doing at the moment. Okay. For, as kind of as I suppose kind of part of promoting the book on my blog and on social media and things like that. Um yeah, I've I've seen the flummeries on your Instagram. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of jelly and flummery. Flummery is such a good word. It is a good word. I think it just means nonsense, doesn't it? You can say something's just a load of flummery. Am I imagining that? <laughs> It sounds like... It sounds I've, like I've it come across be... it as, like, sort of an old-fashioned way of saying nonsense, yeah. Yeah, okay. I wasn't sure whether I'd uh, made that up or not. Um, okay, that's good. That's a thing. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that, which requires a lot of patience. I'm, I'm not a very patient cook, at least when it comes to being doing fiddly things like decorating cakes. I've never been one for that, but um, I've had to... Uh, try and get enthusiastic about it and actually it turned out to be quite a lot of fun so i'm doing that half the time crazy jellies in crazy molds and then everything else is uh, either thai or indian as kind of far Ooh. away culinarily yeah. from a flummery as you could possibly get <laughs> masaman curries and thai green curries and, and things like that both ends of the flummery spectrum Yes, yeah, they're absolute opposite ends, and it's why I originally got into when I back when I was just cooking as a hobby. It was Asian food that I got into. It just ended up getting usurped by sort of traditional and historical British stuff. I mean, there is overlap there, isn't there? Like the Victorians got quite into curry. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're Hey, going right as far back as the Crusades, you know, there's always been the 
the Silk Roads and the and the, and the Spice Roads, and then mm. of course the the Empire, and then after that the Commonwealth. So yeah, we've always we've always been as um as a, of a world cuisine as is possible at the time. At, at the minute, of course, you can go anywhere in the world without having to leave Manchester. In my case, when it comes to your to your food, and if you for some reason you can't get it, you can just bob on to um, Amazon or something like that. Oh yeah, there's <laughs> Fill in a, the gaps. there's a website that we call the dangerous website. Um, mm. By Whole Foods Online, where we oh, we've yeah. been able to get any spice that we want at all. Mm, yeah, I use that. I got some um, long pepper from there recently. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's where my long pepper's from as well. I, I love I love long pepper, and it's I got think more of a citrusiness to it than it regular. It is fruity, isn't it? Mm, I really like it. I think it should replace regular pepper. I have a theory, which is one hundred percent probably total nonsense but i think the only reason we stopped using long pepper is because you can't get it in a grinder but you can peppercorns yeah i can i, I can see that like peppercorns are a lot more space efficient yeah easy to use you can even try and even in a pestle and mortar it's a nightmare to do mm. long pepper and it's easy to do uh, black peppercorns so i think it was just one of the things where well it doesn't taste as nice but it's done much more easily and quickly and less messily that's my um, that's my pepper theory i'll i'll go ahead and incorporate that into my belief system as they say <laughs> on tumblr is that what they call a spicy take mm. <laughs> it certainly is it is now i'm just started already <laughs> well so um tell us about uh the person whose life is the subject of your latest book in today's episode well, Elizabeth Raffold of Manchester, well, she's actually from Yorkshire, from Doncaster. Um, she's best known for writing a book called The Experienced English Housekeeper. 1769 was the first edition. There's been many editions of it. And, well, the book that's just out, I've, I've called Before Mrs. Beaton, because I think when, when people think of important cooks from our past that maybe, I don't know, sum up what we think of today as traditional British food. I reckon the first person that people think of, of in most cases, the only person people can think of is Mrs. Beaton. Yeah. That would be a fair assumption. And most people have heard of it, even if they don't know anything about it, they've heard the name. Definitely the first sort of name I remember hearing in conjunction with, like, food history. Yeah, she's the one that's sort of invoked whenever people talk about proper British cooking. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a massive... To I mean, have you ever seen the book? It's so thick, it's basically a cube shape. <laughs> it's as wide and as it is, you know, it's as deep mm. as it is, high and tall. Um, as I was researching the about Elizabeth, um, obviously Mrs. Beaton's always in mind. And I was, I realised that the reason nobody's heard of Elizabeth Raffold now is because when Mrs. Beaton put her book out, which she didn't even write, by the way. Oh, don't worry. We've done, we've done. Have you done, have you done Beaton? Beaton? Okay. We have talked about the controversy. 
Okay, good. Okay, if you're listening and you haven't, stop now, go listen to that episode, then come back because there is drama. (laughs) Yeah, Isabella Beaton, I call her the Colonel Sanders of um, food cooking. (laughs) She's kind of real, but not really. Mm. There was a Mrs. Beaton at one point, but she was so heavily branded and she's changed through the decades that you know there's not there's none of the original person left and as we say that original person didn't even do that much <laughs> but anyway um yeah she she's got her book out almost a hundred years later or after um elizabeth raffles books out and that book is just covers everything Everything you need to know about anything, not just cooking, but, you know, uh, laundry, cleaning, uh, stuff about about um, the laws and things like that. If you need to get a lawyer, there was advice for stuff like that. You wow. didn't need another self-help book at all. So really nobody had to buy any other books. So all the women that had come before Beaton and Raffles, well, in my opinion, anyway, the most important one. There's obviously others. Eliza Acton and Hannah Glass are names that you might have heard of, mm-hmm. who were also very important. But um, what I then realised was, I didn't realise how much of a, pra- a, a plagiarist she was. You kind of hear rumours, and then when you really look at it, you just like, like oh my God. <laughs> and she'd stolen the recipes from all those women. So she didn't just um, blow them out of the water. She blew them out of the water with their own recipes. So I thought, well, something's got to be done about this then. So I, I, I kind of put Mrs. Beaton's name first up in the title because there's more important people than Mrs. Flipping Beaton. Okay, so we're leading with that. Like, you can tell me feel very strongly about this. Passive-aggressive <laughs> approach that I use. <laughs> I love it. Um, but I'd first heard about her absolutely, God, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, maybe a little more. Um, the reason I got into food history and cooking was because I started a blog cooking the recipes in Jane Grigson's English food. And there's quite a few raffled recipes in there. And one of her recipes, she kind of uh, recreates uh, a cassette orange custard. It's very nice. And she wrote a little introduction about Elizabeth and all the things that she'd achieved. And the list was enough for about six normal people's lifetimes. <laughs> so it wasn't just this, this amazing book that she'd done. It was all this other stuff. Right. And it's, it wasn't just um, food either, was it? It was. No, no, it was. She, she really focused just on food and home economics, I suppose. She didn't bother with anything else. Uh, unlike most other cookbooks at the time. Ah, okay. So very specialist. It was specialist, yeah. And um, if you pick it up now, uh, you look through it and you think, well, this just looks like a book of traditional food. There's things that you've heard of but might not have had, as well as things that are really popular. So, I don't know, things like jugged hair (laughs) and lots of kind of boiled puddings. Uh, uh, But there's things that are kind of, in inverted commas, modern, ice cream, uh, pick a lily. <laughs> All these kind of really traditional British, British things. There's omelettes. 
which I don't know, these kind of foods, to me, I mean, you don't know, no one knows how old an omelette is, but I always think of it as something relatively recent, not 250 years old when it comes to British cuisine. So you look, you flick through and you go, oh, okay, well, that's a nice book. I mean, there's lots of weird and wonderful things in there too. <laughs> Maybe we'll get onto that later. But um, yeah, you just read I think it and you we, think... we both picked out the same couple of things to just kind of yell at each other over Facebook Messenger. <laughs> oh, yeah. There are a couple of recipes that would make good names for metal bands, and I imagine we will be talking about those at, at some point. <laughs> I, I think I already know what two of those would be then going by that description <laughs> excellent um oh i've lost my thread now what was i saying um yeah so you just think oh well it's a book of british food what's so great about that but what you don't realize is in that in that book there's just she's got a finger on the pulse of what is cool and trendy at the time you know, she's what people would say now as a game changer. To us, it's kind of old hat. But then it was all new and fantastic and exciting. Um, she's the first person to have a recipe for macaroni cheese. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> for example. So it's not an American invention. Um, she's the first person... Well, this one's a bit dubious. She... Um, when she had a shop, she sold, she just she boiled down um, like legs of veal and ham into an extremely concentrated stock to the point where you could slice it up, dry it out, and she'd sell that as a portable soup. It did oh. exist as a recipe for a few decades before it, but she was the first person to actually sell it on a commercial basis. Uh, so she's reckoned to be the kind of the inventor of the stock cube. See, I really love the portable soup because it feels such like a D&D rations kind of thing. Yes, it does. Like you, you carry <laughs> it around in your little haversack and then cook it over the campfire and share it with your halfling friends. Yeah, exactly. It does sound good. Um, I think um, Heston Blumenthal, who I'm not, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, but obviously I keep an eye on because he does a lot of historical stuff. He basically did that recipe but he didn't call it that he did this um i think it's still on the menu at the fat duck he, he he it was part of a alice in wonderland themed menu and there was um the mad hats tea party with the little um teapots glass teapots he had and you popped in uh, a little drink me thing i think it was a tag that's a drink me on it and it was basically her portable soup except he covered it in in gold leaf so oh, you could charge loads of yeah of course he did <laughs> but poured water and it mixed it up and you pour it out into a little teacup and you and you drink you drink it so you know this is stuff that um is 250 years old that people are still making in fairly well-to-do well fairly well-to-do extremely well-to-do restaurants <laughs> i am slightly curious how similar it would taste to something like bovril yeah yeah i have made these things before i've made things like demi glass you know when you, you've boiled down enough meat for it to become a sort of paintable thick syrup which is maybe not quite as thick as bovril and it is good it's not bovril isn't as nice but yeah it's not a million miles away from it which is no bad thing i quite like bovril i don't know if that's making me show off my age 
I mean, I'm I'm not a fan, but my dad is a big fan, so I yeah. I, I couldn't say either way. <laughs> my nan has a cup of bovril at bedtime every night. So pretty good. I'm on toast, you know, instead of marmite sometimes. It's almost impossible to tell the difference between the two, really. If I'm making the gravy and there's vegetarians about, I just use a bit of marmite instead of, you know, beef stock or whatever. That sounds pretty good, actually. I might give that a go. Marmite gravy. Mm. Mm, it works. Just use your vegetable stock or whatever, but then put a little half a teaspoon of bovril or marmite in and you've suddenly got amazingly beefy, delicious gravy. Yes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. a, she um uh, her she's got the first recipe for an Eccles cake. Ah, Ooh. another classic. Another classic. She doesn't call it an Eccles cake. She calls it a sweet patty, and there is the chopped up meat of a calf's foot in it, which is something we don't include today. <laughs> yeah, it's I definitely an Eccles cake. That version. It'll probably be I'll nice. Try it. Well, I've made a lot of mince. Because it's, it's, I mean, an Eccles cake isn't a million miles from a mince pie. Mm -hmm. So, um, back in the, I mean, like you were saying before about you know Victorian foods being very dried fruit heavy, it was the same for the Georgians, except it was much more expensive because there were no seedless raisins then. You had to de-seed every single one by hand. Oh wow! So having a great big fruit cake then was you know, quite the, um, you know, thing to show off about. But anyway, right. yes, um, any kind of mince pie, or what we think of today as a mince pie, um, of which there are just so many different variations of, mm -hmm. always have meat in. Which always. makes sense, because we do call it mince meat. Mm. You know, it's, it is odd that we don't put meat in it, but yet we still call it mince meat. For mince pies. That is quite weird. It's pretty confusing. Do you remember that? Um, oh God, sorry, I'm going down a rabbit hole a little bit. But do you remember a few years back? I think it's that website called the Spruce Eats. The Canadian, a Canadian website, I think. I Wait, that I think. Yeah, they um, did a recipe for a traditional British mince pie. So they said. They, showed, they said how to make the mince meat, but they completely misunderstood. And it was just a load of minced beef yes. with some grated apple in it. Actual mince. Oh. Sounds texturally interesting. Mm. <laughs> Obviously, from the other side of the pond, we were all collectively laughing and pointing. And they quickly took the recipe down and popped up one that was correct a few days later. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. I wonder where they got that from. But, I mean, you would assume... That that's what would be in it, since that's oh, yes. what it's called. It's not unreasonable. <laughs> it's not unreasonable. So um, yeah, her Eccles cakes had lots of calf foot meat, which was good econo good home economics because when you're making things like jelly and flummery, where you have to make your own gelatin from calves' feet, boiling them down, um, there's leftover meat in there, so you may as well use them and pop them in your mincemeat pie. Yeah. For sure. I suppose her biggest um, claim, not her, oh, well, she wasn't, it wasn't her claim to fame at the time. She obviously didn't realize how successful she was going to be. But she was the first person to, well, first of all, have a wedding cake instead of a wedding pie. 
which is basically a great big mince pie, again with calf's meat chopped up in it, <laughs> but with champagne in it because it was for a wedding. Mm -hmm. Instead, she does a great big fruit cake and does the thing that we all do, even now, covers it in marzipan and then icing. She was the first person, as far as we know anyway, she, she came up with that. That had never been done before. That's wild, because that's like... I feel like it's it's dying away a little bit now, but I f that was the standard wedding cake for a very long time. And, and like royals even... still have it done that way, that traditional way. I think they do like a fancy one, but they still, they also do the traditional double wrapped, whatever mm. you want to call it. And of course, it, and it's also our Christmas cake. Yeah, I mean, that's where it, that's yeah. where it's most popular still, I suppose. I do like that a lot of our special occasion cakes are the same cake, but with different decorations. <laughs> we just have one thing. If we're spending money, we make this. Indeed. Because it's Simnel cake time at the minute, which I think is the Ooh, best yeah. of the fruit cakes. I like the my humble apples. opinion. I like, I like to put um, candied primroses on it. Nice. That requires too much patience. I don't do that. <laughs> I only do it once a year, so <laughs> fair enough. But um, yeah, so that, that, that's that's the those are the things that I think a lot. It's it's quite easy to find that kind of stuff out about Elizabeth. Those are her, her claims to fame. If you go on the Wikipedia page, <laughs> all those kind of things are there. Okay. Uh, it was the it was the other stuff that was really remarkable. Um, well, actually, I've got here. Because I always forget all the things that she did, because there's so many things. I found the, bit, the page from English Food by Jane Grigson. I'm not going to read it all out. It's just to help me remember everything. <laughs> but she, what she's saying is, and I totally agree with this, that um, most of the best cookery books from Britain are written either by women or by foreigners. What do you think of that? I think that's pretty good. Did say that checks out? I think so, yeah. All my favourite cookery writers are women. There's a couple of blokes in there, but mainly women. I was going to say, I, I, was about, I keep being about to say, oh, but what about this guy? And then I remember he was actually foreign. <laughs> <laughs> and when it came to British food, you know, there's a lot of French cookery going on. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, in 18th century, it was the, it was the peak of, you know, us looking over the English Channel to the French and going, oh, this is just the perfect food and it's really ostentatious and it was really rich and you used loads of fuel and it was really wasteful because you were bubbling all this stuff down to make these rich sauces. <clears throat> uh, but they, they came over and what they realised was, actually, British food is pretty good. you just got to cook it properly. So they kind of applied their techniques and British food got a bit of a leg up, I suppose. Because people like Elizabeth Raffle, she trained in confectionery. It's what we would call patisserie today. Okay. And the reason that she was so successful in her lifetime and for the next few decades was because she was saying, well, you, look, you can get these French people in fine, but it's a complete waste of money. They're going to cost you a fortune for wages, uh, food, the, the equipment that you need. She says, no, what I can do is 
I can do loads of really good food that comes in on budget. You can tell she's from Yorkshire. That comes in on budget. <laughs> it's nice. And when it's time to pull out of the stops, say it's Christmas or whatever, I'll show you how to do that as well. So she took all the best bits of French cookery and applied them to English cookery. And that was really the secret to her success. And the voice that she uses as well. She doesn't do any kind of, you know, talking down to anybody because she's, uh, a, you know, from the servant class herself. She was a, a housekeeper in a big posh house um, called Alley Hall in Cheshire. I don't know if you've been, but it's a fantastic place. So she's, like, she's got this great big book of all these recipes that she's been using herself for ages. So... Recipes have been tested. Everything works. And that, and I'm going to say it nicely. I'm not going to patronise you. And I'm not going to suck up to anybody, you know, like the ladies of the house or anything like that. I'm just going to be plain speaking, Doncaster lass. <laughs> but it worked. So is there a demand for, like, DIYing this kind of stuff um, rather than trying to um just like having to go and buy it or well it depends on what kind of house you were in if it's 1769 when the first edition of the book comes out then it's specifically for uh people who have a housekeeper you know employ a housekeeper or at least some okay. kind of staff mm -hmm. books were pretty expensive they were much cheaper than they used to be they're still pretty expensive um a lot of two thirds of women couldn't read at the time, so wow. it was for really the lady of the house, maybe a housekeeper if it was a large house, um, to use, and they could communicate things then to to the staff. So that was the idea, but the reason it became so popular is as you go through the decades, um. And you get kind of more people moving up into that kind of middle class, into the middle classes, where they might have a one member of staff, a poor old um, maid of all work who had to do everything. And quite often a woman would be married. And she's, I mean, she's expected to be the housewife. But what that means, if you're in the middle classes or above, it means managing the whole house, managing the staff. Uh, getting things to cook, go out on budget, you know, it was a full-time job and it, and it was hard and you weren't necessarily trained up to do it, <laughs> especially if you were quite well to do because, you know, at the time, people really wanted to show how much money that they had. So one really good way of showing off how much money you had was the the man of the house, if you like, the Lord, could provide enough money so that his wife didn't have to do anything. Or his daughters didn't have to do anything. So quite often, people going in quite blindly, maybe to a, a smaller house with fewer staff than they were used to, and they just didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> but they were just expected to. But now there was a book. Okay, it wasn't like Mrs. Beaton where everything's covered, but um, there's extremely basic recipes in there going right up to, your, you know, your turtle soups and all that kind of posh stuff. So it's almost like a housewifing for beginners. It's one of those woods. Well, it is. But again, if you if you uh, can cook, but you just need more repertoire, you know, there's stuff in there for you too. Because there's, there's a, like 250 recipes in there or something. 
So whatever level you're coming in at, there's something for you. So everybody mm -hmm. wanted a copy. And she, um, she raised the funds. It's a bit like, um, uh, it's crowdfunding, essentially. She, it's called a subscription service at the time, but you basically went around canvassing your book maybe with, it, with a little sample couple of pages or a chapter that you'd written yourself, and people would pay, a sh uh, well, in her case, four shillings <laughs> for the book. And when enough people had um, put in their few shillings, she could get them all printed and sent off. Um, and she's just... It's that thing that you've got to admire, that self-confidence, I suppose. She mm. says, these all work, these are all simple, here's a free sample, go off and use them. When you've used them, you'll come back and want to buy the book. <laughs> and sure enough, that's what happened. Pretty good marketing technique. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was pretty good at branding herself at the time. You know, she was head of the curve. Nothing compared to the Beatons in the next century, of course. But well, yeah, she was really on it. Perhaps if you've got a publisher husband, I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah, indeed. I mean, Elizabeth was helped along by her husband. Oh, at least at first, he became a bit of an albatross. Actually, that's a bit of an understatement by the end. But she, she met her, her husband, John Raffle, when she was in Arley Hall as housekeeper. She got the job as housekeeper at 25, which is very young for a housekeeper position in a large okay. house. You want somebody with, a, you know, a certain amount of gravity and decorum. <laughs> you I know, guess, a bit yeah, of wisdom. you're going to be managing and... everyone else. Yeah. But she gets in there at, at 25... Um, it's a bit of a mystery how she gets the job. Nobody really knows why. I think maybe John, John Raffold maybe got the job for her, but he was the head gardener and he was very talented. He was one of the best people in the country for growing, because this is the century of, you know, people trying to grow their own pineapples, <laughs> you know, in the hothouses, and they were able to force fruits to, you know, soft summer fruits and peaches and figs. They're growing them right up to October <laughs> and as early as February because they've wow. got these, and they had melons and pawpaws and mangoes and it was extremely expensive. It was quite a lot of coal and charcoal to keep everything hot. But he was there managing it all and, you know, the, the vast amount of their fruit and veg was being made by, by John Raffold. And he had given up his own... Um, well, not fortune, maybe, but he was the eldest son of the Raffles in Stockport. And, yeah, he was the eldest. He would inherit the business when his father died, and he said, nope, I'm going to give that to the next son down, who's called James. I'm going to go work in Alley Hall and live my dream. So that's all great. He's doing fantastic, growing pineapples here, there, and everywhere. But then... Elizabeth says, of course, we don't know what's actually said. There's very few times where their words have been captured in any way. But she says, right, come on, we're moving to Manchester then, um, where his brothers had these amazing market gardens just over the River Irwell in Salford. They were, they were so fantastic. It was called Paradise by the locals. Oh. <laughs> So when she got there to Manchester, she opened up this shop and she used um, her in-laws produce to, you know, for various things for her shop. And she had this kind of really upmarket catering business as well. 
uh, making food for all the, you know, the most well-to-do of Manchester, the uh, the gentry of Manchester. And also there's lots of um, surgeons in Manchester at the time too, making nice salaries. So yeah, she had all this fantastic produce at, at a cut price right, at a cut price rate even. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, that kind of Yorkshire um, eye for a bargain and for economics and... So she was really on budget. top of it then, just sort of pushing through whatever she wanted to do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I don't really know how John felt about this. Um, it's something that I kind of mentioned later in the book. You know, he's, he's given up his his own inheritance to his brother to go to Wally Hall. He's only there for a few years. She's only there for yeah. a few years. And before I know it, they're back. He's had to get a job at his brother's market gardens, the ones that he should own. God, that must have been a conversation. Yeah, and you just kind of got you got to think, you know, who is the ones who's kind of powering this relationship? Did he just want to live the cottagecore dream and be a gardener? Yeah, so you just got to think, you know, this is what kind of where you think, well, you know, she must be a force to be reckoned with. She must have put up such a good argument for it and convinced him mm-hmm. that it was a good idea that. Yeah, they did. And they hit the ground running. She just opens this shop almost immediately um, in, 17, in the 1760s, 1763, I think. She has this little shop on Fennel Street. She's there for three years and she outgrows it very quickly. Yeah, she's got a, she's got a fancy shop selling all sorts of things like her flummeries and her wedding cakes and all that kind of stuff. This posh catering business. She opens the first register office in Manchester, which is basically an employment agency for servants. Okay. Manchester must have really needed it. It was a it was it was growing at a quite a exponential rate because of the um, cotton trade. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't quite the industrial revolution, at least not for textiles. So it was more industrious than industrial, I suppose. But she could see that the place was growing. And there wasn't anyone there providing good food or servants for the people who were moving there in their droves, all these uh, merchants and the people associated with merchants, like, um, I don't know, furniture makers, all suddenly getting rich. So what Elizabeth was perfect at doing was not necessarily always inventing things, although she had invented quite a lot of things. What she was good at was spying a gap in the market and jumping in there and being the first to get in there. How did she have time to do all this at once? I know, and she did that in three years. It's unbelievable. And she, she just appeared. I mean, the, when it comes to primary sources, the main one is the Manchester Mercury newspaper. <laughs> this is a four-page newspaper. They're all on microfilms at Manchester Central Library, so you can just walk in there and have a look at them. And they've got all the editions there. And um, yeah, I, I, I trace her life going through <laughs> these newspapers. It took me ages. Oh my gosh. I thought I was going to have to start living at Manchester Central Library, but I did get through that eventually. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> quite nice. <laughs> Character <that>. building. <laughs> They've got pianos that you can uh, yeah, just, but you just see... fill out with. Mm. Yeah, so she, she outgrows. Um, Fennel Street and opens uh, a place on Market Place it's called, even though it's a street which is confusing. Do you know Manchester well? I mean, I, I like to think so. 
So if you're walking down Market Street, mm -hmm. imagine your head, so you're going through this, this the Andale Centre on your right-hand side, you get to the bottom of Market Street, and then there's the Corporation Street is cutting across. That yeah. used to be called Marketplace. Oh, That's where okay. her shop was. So right in the centre of Manchester, a little bit further down towards um, where Urbis, the football museum, and Chetham's is. That sort so, of yeah. end. Presumably that's why her plaque's on Selfridges, because that's, like, right by there. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we can't say exactly, but that's the best place, or the closest we reckon we can get to where, where her place was. Mm -hmm. And it was this place that really, she was extremely successful. She got a bigger, better shop. She upped her catering business even more, ended up running a, a tavern around the corner called the Bull's Head, which I reckon is now on the site of the Warhammer shop <laughs> and Pizza Hut. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. Okay, that's Still, what I reckon the Bull's Head is. I've tried to piece it together. <laughs> uh, but that's where I reckon she is. Um, she opens a finishing school for young ladies. To get them trained up for when they become housewives. But I mean, saying housewife, you can't go, oh, well, you know, cooking and cleaning, but it's, no, it's running the house, mm -hmm. you know, running the staff and all that kind of stuff. Um, she wrote in 1772 her first edition of the Manchester Sulphur Directory, which was an A to Z, basically a yellow pages of all the businesses in Manchester and Salford at the time, because there wasn't one. How did she have the time? <laughs> it just keeps going. It's nuts, isn't it? Well, um, she... Well, this is what I think. She was extremely well-connected. She she had this... Uh, she knew all the well-to-do in and every businessman, because they were buying food from her, getting servants from her, or she was sending uh, delivery boys out with various packages and orders. So I think what she must have done is realised that she knew everybody and she could cash in. Uh. Apparently it was an arduous task, but she did it. So she just thought, oh, I'll just make the yellow pages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, the town had 20,000 inhabitants. Still a lot of people. <laughs> she, knew she, she knew she'd missed some out. And I think maybe two years later, she did a second edition, which was updated and had a much more detail on it. Like she put the numbers, you know, of the houses on the streets. It was just street names, the first edition. So she really improved it in the, in the second one. But, I, I just she, love the idea of this incredibly busy woman just sitting down like, I'm going to publish my Rolodex. Yeah, I haven't got enough to do. Because it's so weird, because even if you took two of those things out, it'd still be too much for one person to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also while she's there, she writes the experienced English housekeeper, not one, but two editions. <laughs> she sure. <writes> there. <laughs> and, and the whole time, and this is the other thing, she's pregnant the entire time, or nursing, or, well, or recovering from pregnancy, or nursing a baby. She apparently had, and I don't think this is true, 16 daughters. Um, I think she may have had 10. Was this a way of, like, trying to create a, a sort of team of people to run her business empire? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, people had big families then. There was a lot of 
child mortality. So that was uh, uh, an element, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it's just an era of big, big families. A lot. She only three actually survived until adulthood, unfortunately. Okay. Um, because there's things like smallpox, um, purpural um, fever, which was essentially a, an infection caused, you know, after you're given birth, which is caused by regular um, bacteria that are on your own skin. But you know, if people didn't know about bacteria in those days, people didn't weren't kept appropriately clean. And things like that. So that that was a big problem. <clears throat> so yeah, only three, only three survived. I, th- I think a lot of this might have been due to overwork for her. Okay. I mean, she's dashing up. She's physically dashing about, and she's cooking and throwing stuff around. She obviously just carried on with a certain amount of abandon, because she must have. Because how could she have got all those things done? Mm. I think that potentially maybe came at a cost. I don't know. There's three out of well, if it's if it's if it is sixteen, that's only you know only three out of sixteen. That's a shockingly high mortality rate, even for the time. Oh, I forgot something else. She um, saved the local paper, the Manchester Mercury, from going under, and she funded a second one. <laughs> ah, in six years, that or that that list of things. I wasn't expecting finance the local newspaper to, to add on to the list. She just transformed the, I mean, so, I mean, on one level, you could say it was altruistic because um, she needed that paper because it was like a trade paper. So it wasn't just news. It was about all the businesses. Oh, I was going to say, I bet she had like adverts in there. Or... She had an advert in there every week. You know, <laughs> so it was, it was very important that it didn't go under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. So yeah, so she, you know, she's there six years in the second place, and what happens then is, and a little notice appears in the Manchester Mercury saying, all of uh, the uh, food and the equipment in the shop or marketplace is up for sale, and then they disappear, <laughs> and then okay. about six months later they appear again just over the river in Salford and they've occupied this huge tavern and hotel complex sold everything given up all the other businesses and put all their eggs in one basket in this great big fancy hotel and it really was fancy I mean visiting royalty went there she was you know entertaining the most important people in the north of England and sometimes the whole of England <laughs> if they're on a visit wow. So it was amazing. I mean, it's just you just when you think, oh, I'm I'm done now. I've achieved I've achieved everything I want to achieve. <laughs> now I'm just going to make a total go in the opposite direction, left field. Open up a great big tavern, and what happened was it was a team effort. Her uh, husband John gave up all of his stuff to do with market gardens, and he was front of house. He apparently was very charismatic and uh, good looking. So obvious place, front of house, looking after everybody. She was at the back. She had a special little um, office called a sanctum <laughs> where she'd write more editions of books, more directories, 
all that kind of stuff. And it was all going very well until John started drinking too much and became an alcoholic. Oh, no. There was, he's meant to be looking after the front, not just, you know, entertaining, but making sure everything in the front was working properly. He was basically drunk all the time. There started to be thefts and people weren't paying bills. And all of a sudden, her well-oiled machine that she'd always had I guess because she was giving the responsibility to other people for the first time, and it all just went horribly wrong. Um, I mean, one thing that did go right was she sold the copyright of her book at, the, at just before the third edition came out. And she, I mean, she was rich. £1,800 she was given for the copyright, which doesn't sound wow. much now. But when she was a housekeeper, her annual salary was £16 for perspective. So that's like so, a set up for life, set up for essentially. Life. Yes. There's a brilliant story. A nephew was there, saw the money being counted out and watched it agog. It's massive, like, rolls of money. Back when banknotes were massive. Quite big maps. Um, yeah, so she was doing all, all this stuff, but that wasn't before long, that £1,800 just evaporated. Okay. And before you know it, bankrupt. Oh, wow. What happened? There's, well, suddenly there's, well, see, the thing is, there was a lot of drinking going on in those days, lots of men's clubs, and it was, I mean, it's quite a masculine thing to do now, isn't it, get drunk? But then it really was a mark of your masculinity. So I think John was doing all this entertaining from really well posh clubs, like beefsteak clubs were being held there. So, you know, it was really important people. And he was having a match there drinking and maybe giving them a few free drinks, you know, in the hope that they spend more and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think he just ended up drinking. I mean, I had a restaurant for a short amount of time and you do end up drinking a lot. You're around alcohol all the time. So I can kind of um, sympathise with him to that. I mean, he obviously took it too far. Um, Yeah, the whole thing collapses just suddenly you notice saying that they're selling the place. Okay. And then it's gone. Um, they reappear maybe six months later, and they've opened up this really dodgy, well, it's a dodgy place of town, a little coffee house called the Exchange Coffee House. Um, she hasn't got really much to do with it. It might have been a place where dodgy deals were done, perhaps sex workers there too. It was really, you know, not ideal, let's say. Um, <laughs> And she kind of, well, she made a few soups and things like that, like to feed the, the patrons who were turning up there. But she was, off, she was off at the races selling strawberries on a stall. I mean, they'd really gone, you know, rock bottom. She was still banging out more uh, experienced English housekeepers. And I think maybe, even though they sold the copyright, she was still advertising them. So she must have been getting some kind of royalties for it or something, because there'd be no point advertising it, would there? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's getting popular. She does, an, she does another edition of the directory. Things do, did seem to be coming round. You know, I think the good thing about Elizabeth's life is she knows that if you just work hard and you are focused everything else will follow because i mean that's what she'd done so far and of course the king's head hadn't gone very well but apart from that you know it's a pretty good 
rule to live by. Just work hard. <laughs> And things will work out in the end. And things were starting to look up for her when she just suddenly drops dead. Um, at, right. at the age of 47. Okay. Um, and I, mean, I guess not an enormous surprise given how much she'd been doing. No. I mean, well, first of all, is how can she be 47 and have done all those things? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm 46 next. <laughs> you got to get on it. My list of achievements is certainly nowhere near as long as <laughs> some ruffles. Hey, you've, you've done quite a lot of things, but perhaps not quite as much as she did. I mean, she's the queen of overachievers. Let's mm-hmm. you know, let's face it. But yeah, probably a stroke or aneurysm or something like that. And and that kind of that's where it gets most sad, really, in a way. John, sorry. He immediately goes bankrupt, sells everything. Um, he she's buried in a church in Stockport because that's where, that's where the Raffles are from, not where she's from, but where her, her husband's family are from. Uh, no um, gravestone because they couldn't afford one. And her and her her grave, or, or at least her where, where she is in in the church, it still exists, but nobody knows where it is. And it's all overgrown, and you can't even get into it, apparently. Oh, right. So it's so, there somewhere. Yeah, we don't know where, which is really sad. Um, John Ruffled ends up just going back into, um, you know, working with his brothers, it seems, and lives to a ripe old age. <laughs> Gives up the drinking. Yeah. It's a funny one, that one, because I think... I mean, there's obviously there's no excuses for completely ruining your wife's amazing business with your drinking too much but i do i i, I do sympathize a little bit like i say because i mean i definitely drank too much when i had a restaurant <laughs> and um you know he had given up absolutely everything and then to end up in a coffee house full of sex workers and people doing dodgy deals i mean that's not where he wanted to be so mm. i'm not surprised he um just let himself go bankrupt essentially that's what seems to have happened and i'm not surprised that he went off and um you know worked in a garden for the rest of his life that seems like the obvious thing to thing to do i'm not i'm not excusing him (laughs) but it seems that would be the sensible thing to do if i were him the Um, world of professional cooking is quite notoriously like hedonistic isn't it yeah and it's hard work Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's long hours and it's late hours and especially if you expected to be drinking with the patrons on top of that you know you can see how he could get into a into that mess yeah i suppose um but still yeah like i say not an excuse but you can you can see why maybe it would have happened um but elizabeth's book lives on you know after she's after she's died the eighth edition comes out which she was just kind of halfway through working through when she died. Uh, and that's when her um, portrait appears. She's never had a portrait in a book. She expressly for- forbade it. Is that the right word? Forbade it? Yeah, forbade. Um, But it, yeah, that appears um, because the publisher could then just go, oh, because she, she, was, she was really controlling, really. Oh, well, no, that's the wrong word. She, had, she knew what she wanted to do and she wouldn't be swayed. And that's fair enough. But as soon as she's popped the clogs, 
the publishers going, right, well, I can make these changes that I've always wanted to change. And I can really push her as a product. And that's when she gets really famous because every new bride has her book. At every bride's wedding, there's a wedding cake <laughs> that's covered in marzipan and icing sugar. Uh, and it just, everybody wants a copy of her book. She's um, one of the first female writers to have her book printed in North America. Wow. Um, in fact, well, I mean, she did a lot for, for women who, who were writing. I mean, obviously, she's very much staying in a, in a woman's place, in inverted commas, at the time, by writing about cooking. But because she was in every, book, in every household, and because some of these households were well-to-do, you know, her book was in the library. And all of a sudden, at least I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it inspired others, certainly to write cookbooks, because there was loads of female cookery book writers there, just absolute swathes of them. And lots of male writers, cookery writers, were no longer kind of doing the showing off kind of food. They were doing Elizabeth's food and they were plagiarizing her recipes. It wasn't just beaten. And before you know it, Elizabeth's food is in other people's books. So her stuff is just ubiquitous. But you wouldn't know it if you didn't know. Because no one's crediting their sources in these things. So everyone's cooking Elizabeth's food all around the country. Wow. So that's real... very Delia or Nigella, I suppose, isn't yeah. it? If you're going to draw on modern examples. And then Mrs. Bean comes along. Oh. And that's that. For, for, and not just for her, for people like Eliza Acton and people like Hannah Glass, Eliza Smith, you know, really good food writers. Elizabeth Raffles was by far the best because her recipes actually worked. <laughs> Can't say that for the other books. Um, but I, I suppose what Elizabeth showed is that you've just got to make sure it works. You, you, you can't assume people know what to do. You can't just put some flour in a bowl. You have to say four ounces of flour in a bowl. I mean, it seems obvious now, but, you know, those, those are the kind mm -hmm. of um, changes she was she was making and really changed cookery writing and changed British cuisine. I don't think I'm going too far in saying that. It sounds like it. Yeah. So it, it's sad that nobody knows who she is. I feel like she should be pushing Mrs. Beaton off her pedestal. <laughs> So her off what you're saying is everyone should go out and get your book. Yeah. Yeah. That's... For moral justice reasons. Which what, what's the what's the title again? So it's people called, can go find it. It's called Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's most influential housekeeper. Uh yeah, it's out now from every all good bookshops and Amazon. <laughs> now just <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> See what you did that. Um, <laughs> just to give people a little taste, a little flavour, as it were, mm -hmm. can we talk about a couple of these recipes sure. that I mentioned? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I chunted on a bit there. Yes, I forgot about this bit. <laughs> Go on. Throw some at me. Rabbit oh. surprised. Rabbit surprised. <laughs> or was this yeah. one pigeon transmogrified? Pigeon, pigeon's oh, transmogrified, pigeon's transmogrified, is, the transmogrified is the one that I was going <laughs> to... Well, things that the title 
of Revit Surprise that isn't that much. But what it is, is a lot. Yeah. Okay. It is. What I think is really weird is, because it, I mean, a something surprise is quite a common thing that used to happen in cookbooks. You know, a, I don't know, chicken surprise. But it's not a chicken surprised. <laughs> it's not surprised <laughs> chicken. It's, it's but not a her rabbits are definitely surprised. Mm. I think that's the aim. I mean, briefly, what happens is they stuff a rabbit with some kind of stuffing, poach it in some stock or water, and then roast them, which is a common way of roasting things. You kind of poach them a bit first. So you got them on the spit, you take them off, you take the jaw bones out and right. stick it in its eyes. So it's what? like so it's like horns. Ah. This is what she says. And then you put a bunch of myrtle in their mouths. I think a myr myrtle is like a, a wild blueberry, isn't it? So blueberry leaves sticking mm -hmm. out of its mouth. Okay. And that's that's um rabbits surprised. And Ooh. I can only imagine because I, I can't find this recipe anywhere else. She seems to have invented it. It's in her, it's, it's in her list of invented dishes, but obviously not one that you mention because no one's mm. heard of it. No one else is making rabbits surprised anymore. But um, yeah, that, there it is. And I suppose they've got their jawbone sticking out of their eyes because maybe in a cartoony way, they've got their eyes on stalks. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm grasping at straws here to... I don't know, because the, the leaves in the on. mouth make sense to me, because it's like they're eating, and that's yes. like... People used to plate animals like they would be when they were alive. That was, that was a thing for a while. Yep. The whole, like, roast the bird and then put its skin back on so it looks like it's alive on the table. Indeed. But why yes. the jawbones in the eyes? I know. <laughs> if anybody knows, because I don't I just do not know. I do not know. I, I'm imagining her sort of in her um, test kitchen, like coming up, try, trying to think, okay, I've got a new addition. I've got to come up with something new, something fresh, and just just grabbing things and sticking them in places. Mm. <laughs> I can almost picture, like, opening the mouth to put the myrtle in and, like, the, the jaw coming off, and she's like, okay, what do I do with this? Uh... <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Pull it a surprise. I, mean, I love it. Yeah, shove them in there. I mean, to give it a bit of um, context, meals at the time were the um, old French style where you've got all the dishes on the table at the same time. So quite often people come in and the first course is already there waiting for you and everything's covered in, you know, cloches. At least if it's hot, it's covered in cloches. So I, I think an element of it is you sit down and you say, oh, what's under here? And you open it up. It's a rabbit it's with bones in its rabbit looking at you with his jawbone sticking out of its eyes. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, that, I mean it's not a strong joke, <laughs> but I'm assuming that's the thing. That's, what, that's, that's why it's happening. I mean, but I don't know. I, can't I think mean, of I guess animals. animal cruelty was public entertainment at that point, wasn't it? So maybe it's... I mean, this is the era of cockfighting, bear baiting. So, you know, the grotesque uh, was certainly, at least for posh people anyway, who could afford to have bear baiting. Mm. Um, yeah, a fairly everyday occurrence, I suppose. 
yeah, blood sports and game hunting and all that kind of stuff. It's always been popular, hasn't it, with the upper classes? Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, I guess that's what it is. I'm going to try and have a go at it. Um, it's hard <laughs> to get brave. rabbits with their heads on still, which, of course, oh. you have to have, otherwise it's not going to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't often get them with their heads on. But um, apparently if you get um, an imported French rabbit they always have their head still on so uh, i'm going to try and get myself an imported french rabbit which is probably tricky now because of brexit but we'll give it a go it's, it's ruined the uh rabbit with heads on industry <laughs> <laughs> exactly i really want to have a go at it though i bet i mean aside from the eyes it does actually sound quite nice if if you do please please tag us on twitter or something I need to see this. I will. In fact, I'm going, I'm going to um, my butchers tomorrow who, God bless them, have got me some weird and wonderful things in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask them there if they can get hold of any. Um, given enough time, they usually can. So um, hopefully I will be cooking up some surprised rabbits quite soon. <laughs> The other things that are gory in the book um, are other things like just normal instructions. Um, did you see the to roast a pig in there? No. I mean, it really kind of shows you the, um, what people had to do when they were in the kitchen. Um, I've got a book here. I got a first edition of her book. I'm flicking through it right now. Wow. And I didn't even have to remortgage. <laughs> It's got a few pages missing, which is why it was cheap. But um, yeah, the first, yeah to roast a pig, it starts with, I found it here. The first instruction is stick your pig just above the breastbone, run your knife into the heart. When it is dead, what? put it in cold water for a few minutes then rub it all over with its own blood. I mean, that makes it, sound, it makes it sound very simple, but... Um... A pig is a large and powerful creature. Yeah. But just stick it above the breastbone, it's fine. Easy. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I was saying a, a, a recipes are clear. This, compared to today, that, you know, we need more information than that. But some of the stuff is pretty shocking. It is great to get. You can, you can see the book for, for free as an ebook online. I used it the whole time I was writing, writing the book. It's a first edition. Um, yeah, really easy to get hold of. I'll send you the link. Oh, um, yes, you. Put yeah, you can have a look through the episode description. And it's searchable as well, so you can have a have a proper look through. It's a fantastic book. The, the descriptions that, that that she uses to tell you when things are ready, you know, is that that's certainly a, another first. Was you know she's she's got quite a poetic turn of phrase, and it really does help you because it's hard to write. I mean, I don't know if you've written any recipes for other people. It's actually quite hard. You know, to try and tell somebody when something's ready. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's time to move on to the next stage. Mm-hmm. You know, and she does it. She does it pretty well. So yeah, recipes work. The ones that I've tried, anyway. I might, I might try a few out then and uh, see what happens. Hmm. Let me know. We get on. I'm not going to transmogrify any pigeons. I'm afraid. Oh, well, that's a shame. <laughs> They're at their best when they're transmogrified. <laughs> um, it's a bit beyond my talents, and I'm also 
not a wizard. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's another one I don't. I mean, we won't go down another, another rabbit hole, but I don't get that one either. Transmogrified. They're just shoved in a cucumber. <laughs> That's what it does, seems to me. Does that work with anything? Like, can I? If it's if you can shove it in a in a cucumber, it's transmogrified. Someone's annoying it... me. Can I just stick them in a cucumber? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you could go marrow if it's a bigger and annoying thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, like your partner or something. <laughs> <laughs> he does hate cucumbers, so that would be an appropriate. Well, that would learn him. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> That's probably the, the note to end the episode on, right? <laughs> yes. I think that's a good one. Before people get too carried away with the uh, transmogrifying and surprising things. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from good bookshops and Amazon, where can people find you, Neil? Well, I'm on Twitter at Neil Buttery. That's where I'm I guess most active. I'm Dr. Dr. Underscore Neil underscore Buttery on Instagram. I got my um, podcast as well, British Food History Podcast, although it's a bit quiet at the minute. I'm between seasons. Um, yeah, so loads of places. Um, oh, and if people are interested, I'm giving a few talks about Elizabeth Raffold, actually. One in Manchester uh, in 14th of May, and an online one, a Zoom one, in a couple of weeks' time on the 20-something of April. I'll find the Libby and maybe send it over to you to pop in the show notes if people want to people want to come and listen again to me talk about uh, Elizabeth Raffle. There's so much to say about it. I mean, I've not scratched the surface, really, talking to you guys. There's so much else to say about her. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, um, we'll pop it in. I'm sure some people will Ooh. be interested. Um, but if, if people want to send us their theories about surprised rabbits or anything else you can mm. email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com and it'd be nice to hear from people who do know her and people do still use her cookbook so it'd be interesting if there's anybody out there who's uh, got a copy of it who, who listens I bet there's a few there yeah, are more ruffled appreciators out there than you'd think and there will be more now <laughs> hopefully all this uh, advertising um if you would like to hear neil's other episode on our podcast it is episode 67 on puddings um so if you've um if you've got it got a taste uh for that you can go and check it out um and if you want to support us and get access to a discord server as well as recipes which do not require you to slaughter your own pig, um, you can go to patreon.com slash bread and bread. Sorry, I'm, I'm killing you. Have you ever slaughtered a pig? No. Of course I haven't. I'm not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I've shot a sparrow once, but that was an accident. Oh no. She's got a recipe for sparrow dumplings. You should have cooked it up. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be bothered with the amount of work that would take for, like, the, the amount, amount of meat on a sparrow. Yeah, corresponding amount of dumpling. Yeah. Mm. Um, Unless it's whole. Some birds are eaten whole. 
Anyway, we're on Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of swallowing things whole. <laughs> yeah, we're Bread and Thread on Tumblr and Twitter as well. Um, Twitter, you can find uh, pictures of anything we talk on the podcast, links that we might put up, um, teasers about upcoming episodes, um, and things about food history that we might re- I always say reblog. I'm not a heavy Twitter user, <laughs> as you yeah, can we, tell. But I if mean, you want to blog things on Tumblr as well, so yeah, if you want to see what we reblog, that's that's on Tumblr. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's that's all of our internet presence. Um, so, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.